The following is a fictional interaction between teacher and student. Something about your homework seems suspicious to me, and I noticed that you copied all of this code from a past student. I believe that you can succeed in the class, but you must start by doing your own work. I understand, and I will do my best. A few months later. You should be very proud of your work in this class. The quality of your code has improved steadily. I hope you learned a valuable lesson about plagiarism. Absolutely. Thank you for teaching me not to copy from peers. I am making way more money now by selling my code to other students. Welcome back to Floating Points, the computer science education podcast with Mimir. My name is Winesh, and for those of you who joined us on the last episode, we learned about autograders and how to live with them. This week, we're going to talk about plagiarism. It's going to be a heavy topic, so stay with us here. Today, we're going to talk about three varieties of plagiarism. Plagiarism that comes from misunderstanding what counts as cheating. Plagiarism that comes from stress and competition and plagiarism that comes from malice, students intentionally trying to cheat or get ahead. This first category is about plagiarism that arises from misunderstanding. And and this topic is most relevant for teachers who are working with students who are programming for the first time because it's, it's hard for them to understand what does and doesn't constitute plagiarism. There have been many years of teaching and pedagogy focused on helping students understand what counts as plagiarism in academic writing, how to properly research, how to cite sources, how to paraphrase, but perhaps there isn't as much of that for programming classes. And I think Instructors who get to work with students who have been coding for a long time, who are very experienced, may not see some of these problems around plagiarism in their classes. And uh, we're not going to propose any solutions in this first act. Um, The goal is just to show how deep this can go and, and how it can become confusing for students. This isn't just important for students who are new to programming. This is important for a teacher who cares about how their students perceive them. The approach to plagiarism can be the difference between an instructor who is too light on plagiarism, whose students see them as easy, even a pushover, and the the instructor who has a lot of very specific rules and and brings down the hammer on plagiarism. And you know those students can see that instructor as as very tough, even pedantic about what it means to to cheat in in that class. And it's, it's difficult to set hard and fast rules because it's not just about copying um, you know, huge chunks of code and blatantly plagiarizing an assignment. Sometimes there are these in-between cases um, that students work with uh, that they're, they're not sure if it counts as plagiarism. And so, so I want to bring up five that we hear from students who get confused about plagiarism and deep dive into one of them. So, so these are the five kind of edge cases of plagiarism in a coding class. The first one has been, has been beaten to death, which is copying from Stack Overflow and online sources. When is that cheating? When is it not? The next tough one that a lot of students misunderstand is instructor code. If an instructor distributes starter code for an assignment or if they have code blocks in their, their lectures and their resources, to what degree can a student use that without cheating? whether it's copying it directly or being inspired by that. 
Another tough one is past code. If a, a student has written code for a past assignment and they want to repurpose it for this assignment, is, is that cheating? And it's tough because in, in academic writing, there's a concept of self-plagiarism, but, but not really something like that for, for code. In fact, sometimes code reuse is encouraged. And so this is, this is where students can get confused because their instructor says plagiarism is bad, but here are some other things that are, are good. And another one of those is pair programming. A lot of instructors encourage students to, to do pair programming in class, to work together um, outside of class if they're struggling, but still submit different assignments. And, and if students work on a pair programming, programming exercise, they may not be sure if that code is fair play to use in their, their homework, even if it's a really good resource for them to refer to. And then the fifth thing that confuses students, which is what I'm going to dive deeper into, is pseudocode. When students write out in English how they're going to solve the problem and then eventually translate that to code. This is a tough one because I'm already thinking of an assignment where rather than have the students write the pseudocode, usually we actually give it to them. So the assignment that, that we see in a lot of introductory programming courses is given two numbers, calculate their greatest common denominator. And since it's a programming class and not a math class, uh, instructors who use this activity don't expect their students to, to come up with, to derive the GCD formula. And, and certainly, you know, there's a, there's a limited set of ways to solve, uh, to get the greatest common denominator, and the instructor doesn't need their student to go invent a new original way of doing it. Um, but often the instructor gives the pseudocode to the students, and they implement it on their own, or even the instructor gives them a link to the Wikipedia page for greatest common denominator, which actually also includes the pseudocode for it. And, and then it's tough, because if the students copy that pseudocode, did they copy? If they use the same variable names from the pseudocode, is, is that plagiarism? And I, I think it, it puts too much pressure on the instructor and risks the instructor getting a negative perception from their students um, if they try to set individual rules for what does and doesn't count as plagiarizing pseudocode. And this is, you know, even we're talking about students who are coding for the first time, but this particular problem with plagiarizing pseudocode can actually go much deeper. If you take an advanced algorithms class, um, you may have to implement a, a red-black tree, a, a pretty complicated, certainly non-trivial data structure that has, you know, essentially one accepted implementation, the one that's in this famous algorithms textbook. And most students who do that as an assignment write it by reading that pseudocode. And it, it's, it may be tough for a student who has seen themselves uh, as not cheating to draw the line between what is an original red-black tree implementation and what is one that's an unfair case of cheating. And all of this gets even more complicated when you bring into play the social dynamics of a classroom, which can't be ignored. Students have friends um, or, or people who are in their fraternity, their sorority, a club from their high school that they went to. And when, when they see another student struggling, they, they feel bad. And especially if that student specifically asks them, hey, can you give me the code for this assignment? I, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. It's, it's, been, it's been a week. Um, and, and what some students do, and what actually we've heard instructors tell their students to do, is rather than giving them the code, explain to them how to solve the problem or give them the pseudocode. Now, is that plagiarism? 
and we have some instructors who say no that's fine you know as long as they didn't give them the code there was no way for the student who was struggling to just outright copy the code that's fine but there are other there are other professors who say that that is that that's cheating because they don't want a student's success in the class to be determined on who they know and who they're friends with and they worry that if one student writes pseudocode and gives it to another student then that was a resource that not everybody had access to and these are, are tough situations because you can set a rule about if you copy code from Stack Overflow, you have to cite it or you have to understand it. But with cases like this, with, with pseudocode, it, it can get a lot more complicated. And so I, I think the important piece here is for um, instructors who are working with students who are programming for the first time or students who are programming something that's going to be out of their comfort zone, even if they've programmed before, um, there can be a lot of gray area over what is original code and what is plagiarism. And it, it's worth talking about. And, uh, you know, we're not proposing any hard and fast solutions, but just to show, um, especially for those instructors who have, uh, who have students uh, who have programmed before and maybe feel they know what plagiarism is, that it, it can get really messy. The gray area can be there. The next variety of plagiarism we're going to talk about is plagiarism that comes from stress and competition. So a, a lot of students say that they, they chose to plagiarize because they had a heavy workload, they were under a time crunch, or because they, they felt that in order to keep up with the students that were doing the best in the class, they, they needed to, to cheat or cut corners. So a lot of instructors have, um, have heard complaints about grading on the curve and the competition that creates. Um, but aside from just changing, um, you know, curve grading, there's uh, there's also the ability to add low stakes assessment. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of students get really fried about projects that are worth like twenty percent or thirty percent of their grade, um, and by by breaking those point totals up into a series of assignments, quizzes, low stakes assessments where students can get credit for for being wrong. Um, or for doing their own original work, even if that's not the best solution, um, can, can not only help them gain some of those points early on, but also when the higher stakes project comes along, they'll have been scaffolded and, and they'll have more in their toolkit and their experience um, to make copying code feel even more like a cop-out or like an unethical option. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of instructors had have had success with adding more uh, low stakes assessments to their class, um, as well as differentiating the learning based on on skill level. Um, for higher level CS courses, sometimes there are graduate students and undergraduate students taking the same class together, and and that can create a lot of competition, uh, especially if the undergraduate students are being graded on the same scale as the graduate students, and even more if the undergraduate students see that the graduate students are cheating, um, that can really um, get students riled up. Um, and sometimes instructors will will have uh, different levels of homework where. The, the graduate students do the, the homework all the way to completion, but undergraduate students only have to pick a few of those problems. Um, perhaps that kind of uh, format could be, could be brought into a, an introductory level class um, to differentiate the learning for students that have more experienced programming versus students who are new or students who are out of major. Obviously, that kind of format will not work for every kind of student or every kind of class, but um, it's something that has, has reduced the competition in a higher level class that can lead to plagiarism 
uh, and could be a way to take some of that stress off um, in intro level courses. And so aside from, from making you know, hard and fast changes to a grading style or to a class, I also wanted to share a way that you can measure where your students are at um, in that area. This, this concept is called flow, and it comes from the field of positive psychology, the, um, the research done by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. And so flow is a, a diagram that has two axes. We'll include a, a link to the picture in more details with the podcast. But the, the horizontal axis is skill level, and the vertical axis is challenge level. And so when I, when I use this with students, I'll ask them, how skilled did you feel about the content on this assignment? And then how challenging was this assignment for you? And if you plot those two values, you get a lot of interesting categories. So the flow model talks about the top right corner, high challenge, high skill, which is flow. Uh, when, when students are in this state of flow, they're, they're powered by adrenaline, even passion, and can operate at a much higher level. But even though flow is the name of the model, it's not the only relevant area. And then the goal isn't always to get students to this top left corner. Um, the bottom, uh, the top right corner, the bottom right corner, which is high skill, low challenge is actually usually called relaxation. And that can be beneficial for a lot of different learning goals. But the stuff on the left side of this picture is, is what we want to talk about. When, when students are mismatched, they have low, medium to low skill level, and they feel like there's a high challenge. This is where you get areas on the flow diagram like anxiety, worry, and even when challenge is low, you can get apathy and boredom. And, and these are conditions when we might be worried that students will be less concerned about the severity of cheating. Um, a student who is anxious and worried about their grade, about how they're performing in the course, you know, may, may resort to cheating, uh, just as well as a student who feels bored and feels that the coursework is tedious, not worth their time, may also find it totally okay to cheat. So this is a, this is a, a metric that you can use, flow. Um, it's not something that I have ever assigned points for, but uh, I use it to kind of get a heartbeat of where um, the class is at. Um, it's led to some good conversation starters with students who um, are struggling. And some students have told me that they've also used this to self-reflect uh, and, and better position themselves. Hopefully this is something that works for you. Um, choosing based on what fits your students and your subjects um, is always the healthiest approach to um, evaluating how to make a class a, a better environment for stopping plagiarism and helping students avoid the negative implications of stress and competition. The last type of plagiarism we're going to talk about today is malicious plagiarism. When students intentionally cheat to try and get ahead or because they, they don't fear the consequences. Um, and for this episode's mailbag, we actually got a few letters from students who were anonymously confessing to their plagiarism. So I, I think we'll, we'll throw out the mailbag for, for this episode and uh, try a new segment that we call Under the Hood. We're going to take a deep dive, get a little technical, and explain a technology that is relevant to this discussion. MOSS. The Measures of Software Similarity is a, a tool that a lot of instructors in the higher ed space use to detect plagiarism, and, and one that uh, certainly some students uh, have had their own run-ins with. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about MOSS, and uh, for, for those who, um, who want to learn more, the MOSS paper that explains the concepts behind the algorithm um, are available. As a disclaimer, we're, we're not talking about 
how Moss works exactly. You know, we're not going to give you a, a reverse engineering formula to to pass Moss every time. But these are the concepts that the creators of Moss cover in their paper that that form the basis for the system. So to start things off, the the authors of Moss have three desirable properties for a measure of of similarity, um, and the the first goal is called white space insensitivity. In in normal writing, this means that you don't consider capitalization, punctuation. But for computer science, we're particularly interested in if somebody copies code and just changes the variable names or adds in some comments, we want it to still show as a match. The next desirable property is noise suppression, which basically means we don't want to penalize really short matches. We, we, we care about the matches that are significant instances of, of plagiarism. And the last property to shoot for is position independence, um, which means that if, uh, if a student just reorganizes the functions or, or copies and puts it in a different place in the document they copied from, it will still be identified as plagiarism. So the, the steps of the, the Moss algorithm work like this. The first thing that needs to be done is to clean the text. This is where the white space insensitivity comes in. Um, we, we take out any comments, we change the variable names to be consistent. There are a lot of sophisticated systems for doing this um, to get to a more pure document to, to look at. The next part that happens um, will be familiar to those who, uh, who maybe have done an assignment like this, but we create k-grams from the text of this cleaned document. K-grams can also be called shingles. Uh, the, the way it works is if you have a, a long word, um, you pick a, a smaller size and pull out substrings of that word going on. So if, if the word is porcupine and our, our size of a K-gram is three, we're going to take P-O-R, we're going to slide over a bit, take O-R-C, and, and this is why they're called uh, K-grams or shingles, because they, they look like the shingles of a rooftop, just um, sliding over and, uh, and cascading across each other. And, and what this does is it, it starts to make the analysis mathematical. We're not matching to say, is the word if for the word while in every document. We are converting the text that has meaning to a user to a bunch of you know, text substrings that, that maybe are not meaningful to a person reading the program, but are soon going to have mathematical meaning and allow us to do a, an unbiased measure of similarity. Then we take those k-grams or shingles and convert them to hashes. Um, this, uh, this process of, of hashing uh, is uh, about cutting up the word and, and turning it into a number. Um, and since we can't represent every possible k-gram um, by using these hashes, uh, we're able to, to have another way of representing when they are similar. Of course, there will be collisions. Um, there will be times when uh, two completely different k-grams have the same hash. Um, and, and this hashing process is what makes the comparison more effective and efficient, but it's also important to design the hashing algorithm well, something that computer science students who have studied the process of hashing will be familiar with. Now this is uh, the part where the reduction happens. The next step of the Moss algorithm is to choose some of the hashes for each document to be the set of fingerprints. And, and this is what makes it so that we don't have to compare documents in their entirety. By choosing a smaller fingerprint, we can end up making only the, the most significant matches. And I'll come back and talk about why it's okay to compare fingerprints rather than the entire documents. But once these fingerprints have been selected, it's time to build what's called the inverted index. 
as every incoming document is fingerprinted, we create this table of all of the fingerprints and all of the other documents that contain those fingerprints. And when a fingerprint is selected, we also take what position it is in the document. This is the best place to take this information that we'll need later, like if we want to, to show a teacher looking for plagiarism where the matches are in a document, this is the step to store it at. And so now we have this table of, of all kinds of fingerprints that represent sections of a document and all of the documents that contain those fingerprints. After that, we go through all of the documents and fingerprint them again. And then we look up the fingerprints in this table, the inverted index that we created, to find all of the documents that also have that fingerprint. After that, we organize those matches into pairs of documents. And now, this is significant because this is actually the first time in this algorithm that we are actually considering pairs of documents. Then, uh, taking the list of pairs of documents, they're sorted based on the number of fingerprint matches they have. And finally, you return the largest matches the pairs of documents that have uh, that surpass the threshold of matches. And now these are the only ones that the user has to consider and look at for cases of plagiarism. So the MOS algorithm is, is innovative because it allows this large-scale similarity detection to occur without doing a kind of round-robin compare every single document to every single other document. Um, through this process of fingerprinting and building the inverted index, um, you're able to do this uh, much faster and more efficiently. So usually after someone learns how the MOS algorithm works, there's one point that they, they just don't believe, and that's the fingerprinting process. A lot of people ask, why is it okay to compare the fingerprints of documents as a way of figuring out if the documents themselves are similar? wouldn't that have more false positives or, or, or wouldn't that miss actual cases of cheating? So let's, let's do a little Dora the Explorer moment. I'm going to leave that question for you. Why is comparing fingerprints a valid way of comparing documents? Now that you had some time to think about it, um, one way of answering this question is, is actually because of a remarkable property of this fingerprinting. And this is the idea. If you have a random set of hashes in a document for two different documents, the probability that you will pick the same fingerprint for those two documents is the same as the actual similarity of those documents. This is interesting because we're, we're comparing things that aren't actually apples and oranges. One is talking about probability of picking a fingerprint, and the other is talking about the actual similarity if we were to compare those documents. And, and that is how they relate. The, the idea that you could pick a fingerprint in any way, and for two documents, the chance that you pick the same fingerprint is actually based on their similarity. The, if you were to try and calculate a formula for that probability, it would be based on things that relate to their similarity. And this is how the makers of MOS improve their algorithm. They come up with a better fingerprinting process. They come up with a better hashing process. They come up with better thresholds and values for how to return matches. 
And, and those are things that if you wanted to adapt this algorithm to a different type of application, you couldn't use their values. You couldn't use their presets. These are the places that Moss is tweaked and improved. Um, if you're interested in reading more about these concepts, um, the paper that explains the concepts behind Moss is publicly available, and we'll include a link to it. In particular, they explain their approach to fingerprinting, which is called winnowing. And that is an approach that selects smaller fingerprints, which lead to faster comparisons, but still achieve great results. And, and that's a lot of the power of Moss. So hopefully this, this uh, gets you kickstarted in learning more about how Moss works uh, and exploring the, the magic of computer science, math, and uh, similarity algorithms. That's a wrap for today. Thanks to everybody listening to the Floating Points Computer Science Education Podcast, and good luck to all of the instructors, TAs, and students who are wrapping up their semesters and quarters. On the next episode, we'll be talking about ethical CS, a really exciting topic that's crucial, uh, especially in today's day and age. We'll even have a special guest on the podcast, 